You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 39. As you're turning there, I'll give us a little bit of context to this psalm. First off, uh, this psalm is addressed to the choir master, to Jaduthun. Jaduthun is addressed in two other psalms and is mentioned several times in First and Second Chronicles. He was a Levitical singer and a leader in the choirs, which would make sense for why this psalm, which was to be sung, was addressed to him. Second, this psalm is a psalm of David, the great warrior king, psalmist, and prophet who defeated Goliath, became the second king of Israel, committed the infamous sin with Bathsheba, and fathered Solomon, who would later construct the great temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, unlike some of David's other psalms, uh, this psalm does not provide us with any context regarding the circumstances in which it was written. As Jake mentioned, Last week, of these few psalms, uh, it is clearly during a time in which David was experiencing the corrective hand of the Lord, that God was disciplining him for his sin, and the weight of that discipline was crushing him. There is some similarity of language in the psalm to First Chronicles uh, chapter 29, when David is praying before the people during the transfer of power to Solomon. Uh, as his successor shortly before David's death. He also ends the psalm with a before I depart and am no more, potentially referring to his great age. However, the exact circumstances of the writing of Psalm 39 are not clear. So as we read it this morning, we're going to have to take a broader look at David's life. So let's get into the text, Psalm 39, reading all the verses. To the choir master, to Jaduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute in silence. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a, a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. 
Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The word of the Lord for us this morning. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that is readily available for us, that we can just sit down and and dig in. We thank you for Psalm 39 and for the, the life and witness of David. Give us your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord, to illumine in our hearts what this text means and how we can apply it to our lives. In your son's holy name, amen. Discipline. Discipline is a word that in today's society has become quite controversial. With a wide range of opinions on what's best for a child, with the overall trend towards less discipline. Some argue that we should do away with spanking, that it is harmful to children's development and well-being, And some go far as to say that it's actually child abuse. Many schools have decided to go away with, uh, do away with suspensions and expulsions. And many states are moving forward legislation to ban corporal punishment in the schools, deciding to deal with behavioral issues in other ways. Many parents have chosen not to discipline, thinking that it is not loving. I even had a professor in college who told me, that he doesn't tell his children what is right and wrong, but rather he wants them to discover it on their own. And sadly, many children are raised in a home without the guiding hand of a father. And what has been the result of these trends? I think most of us have felt the effects. Uncontrollable and continued unaddressed behavioral issues in the classroom high rates of joblessness and idleness for the 20-somethings, disrespect of authority and lawlessness in the streets, people writing things online that they would have never said in person, but now even actually deciding to also say those things in person. And I think we've all been around children of parents who do not discipline them. Now, hopefully my kids didn't come to mind when you think of that. What I would like for us to see today is that discipline is actually good for us and not our human, imperfect, and sometimes even sinfully delivered discipline, but the Lord's perfect, loving, and fruit-producing discipline. So what I would like to propose today is this. God disciplines those whom he loves, and though it is unpleasant in the moment, It produces fruit in us and draws us to our Savior. I'll repeat that. God disciplines those whom he loves, and though it is unpleasant in the moment, it produces fruit in us and draws us to our Savior. I've broken this psalm into three main points. Point number one, discipline should be handled properly before others. That's verses one through three and verse nine. 
Point two, discipline should remind us of our frailty before God. Verses four through six and 10 through 11. And finally, chapter, uh, point three, discipline should draw us to our Savior. Verses seven and eight and 12 and 13. But before we walk through these three main points, I want to touch just briefly on what the Lord's discipline is and what it isn't. Now, the scripture reading this morning was Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. This text makes clear a few things. First, if you are loved by God, you will be disciplined. For to not be disciplined would to mean that you are not his children. Verse 8 reads, If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Second, God disciplines us for our good. Verse 10 says, speaking of our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. It is not vengeful, condemning, or punitive punishment, but rather is meant to train and equip us to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And third, it is unpleasant. Verse 11 reads, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Just as my son is in distress when his toy gets taken away, so we too are often in distress when God disciplines us. And that much is a fact. And it is very apparent here in Psalm 39, as we will see. But one more thing needs to be said before we get into the main points. John MacArthur points out in his sermon on the text from Hebrews that God's discipline has one of three aims, correction, prevention, or education, and often a mixture of these at times. Corrective discipline is when, our, when we sin, or our hearts long for something other than God. And God disciplines us that we might grow in sanctification. You can think of this similar to how a child is disciplined when they hit their sibling, right? That discipline is meant to correct their behavior and the heart motive in that action. Preventive discipline is when God sees what lies before us or knows something that we don't know, and he disciplines us to guard us. Think of when you're teaching your child to look both ways when crossing the street. They haven't sinned by walking into the road unawares, but for them not to be trained to look both ways would be to condemn them to an untimely end. And finally, there is educational discipline. This may be when a loved one passes away or your child goes through a rebellious stage or you lose your job. In those three examples, God may be using those experiences to increase your understanding of the shortness of life, your inability to control others, or to show the fleeting nature of earthly riches. He often uses this form of discipline so that we can sympathize with others, that we can have some understanding of what they're going through, and are able to provide encouragement and hope to our brother or sister in their time of difficulty. It seems to me that the discipline that David is experiencing in this psalm is corrective discipline. 
There are a few indicators that make me think this is the case. First, he says in verse 10, remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. Then in the next verse, he says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, and earlier he wrote in verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. To me, it is clear that the reason for David's anguish in this psalm is a result of God disciplining him for sins that he had committed. If we look at David's life, we'll see that he was well acquainted with corrective discipline. One of the most famous sins in all of history was David's adultery with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband on top of that. Now we don't know that this was a sin that led to God's discipline that David is experiencing here in Psalm 39, though it very well might be because that sin had very lasting effects in David's life. But I'd like to read a good portion of that story from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 so you can see God's corrective discipline at play. Now this is the prophet Nathan confronting David after Bathsheba's husband had been, uh, Uriah had been killed at David's command. It says in chapter uh, 12 of 2 Samuel, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, this is Nathan speaking, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take away your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. For you did, uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Because of David's sin, the Lord disciplined him in several ways. He raised up evil against him out of his own house, which is referring to, uh, which is fulfilled by his son Absalom and his rebellion. His neighbor lay with his wives in broad daylight, also during the story of Absalom, and the death of the first child that he had conceived with Bathsheba, which quickly follows the passage we just read. So when looking at the psalm, we can know that David is well acquainted with God's corrective discipline, and not only light corrective discipline, but severe discipline. Now with that in mind, let's look at our first point. Discipline should be handled properly before others. David begins this psalm in verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. In verse 9 he says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth for it is you who have done it. Why is David needing to tell himself to remain silent? Why is he being so careful about speaking in the presence of the wicked? I believe it's because he is concerned about dishonoring God if he were to speak. And he's being extremely wise in his desire to remain silent. If David were to open his mouth while in great distress, particularly before the wicked, he runs the risk of saying something that might sound like blaming God or maybe lacking in faith in him. He knows that he is in an improper state of mind, that his heart is burning within him, 
and he does not want to inadvertently open his mouth and out comes a sinful tongue. The Bible has much to say about controlling your tongue. Proverbs uh, chapter 17, verse 27 reads, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. James chapter 1, verse 26 reads, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James goes further to say in chapter 3, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds, but they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers and sisters, be careful that your tongue is not unleashed, unbridled. How many relationships have been destroyed by a word uttered carelessly in frustration? How many times have we spoken a word that brought shame to ourselves or to others when it would have been better if we had remained silent? How quick we are to post on social media the passing thoughts of our mind when we would do better to sleep on our thoughts and reconsider them in the morning when the storm has passed. When your heart is burning within you, don't let that fire escape through your mouth. Or maybe like the cigarette butt that sets thousands of California acres ablaze, destroying your relationships in its wake and bringing great dishonor to God. David continues in verse 2. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. And my heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Nathan, what, what are you talking about? Didn't you just tell us we need to remain silent? I just talked about how we must restrain our tongues and David has set out with great intentions of keeping silent, but here he is opening his mouth. What gives? I would argue that David actually doesn't open his mouth unwisely in this case, but rather there's much to be learned from him even in this. Who is the recipient of of his mouth having opened. Who is he directing his words to? Verse 4 gives us the answer. It's God. When the fire is burning within you and your heart is in great distress and the hand of God's discipline just seems never ending, don't direct your words horizontally to others but vertically to God. 
David knows what he is doing here. He knows that God is the one who has done this to him, that is bringing this great distress, and only God is the one who can bring him relief. David knows that man is no help when confronted with Almighty God. So he turns to God instead of man. So a question of application for us here that I'd like for you to consider. How do you respond when faced with the Lord's discipline? Are you quick to complain to other people, seeking to justify your actions or receive pity from others? Or do you hold your peace and bring your complaints to God? David here in this psalm gives us good advice for handling God's discipline before others. But this psalm does more than offer good advice. It gets to the heart of our anguish, for discipline should remind us of our frailty before God. David directs his voice to God in verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Now, when I first started studying this passage in order to preach on it, it took me a while to understand why this is how David responded. I understand the cry of verse 10 where he says, Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. As that seems like the cry that I would make when feeling the weight of God's hand. But the start of David's response is different as he goes into this long monologue on the fleeting nature of his life. I believe the reason that David is responding this way is because the discipline he's receiving has reminded him of the vanity of his earthly desires and of the frailty and brevity of his life. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who had a near-death experience? And I'm not talking about somebody who ran a red light and almost got hit. I'm talking about somebody who was uh, sick or wounded and just barely clinging on to life. I've had the pleasure of speaking with a few people like that over the years. And the one thing that seems common among them is that they now have a different perspective on life. The grass is greener, the smell of spring is sweeter, if you have a spring, and the gentle breeze is more refreshing than it was before. You live life differently when confronted with death. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. David is asking that the Lord would remind him once again of how brief his life really is. Let me know how fleeting I am. He describes it as a few handbreadths, which in that time was one of the smallest measurements used with one handbreadth, basically the width of four fingers side by side like this. He's essentially asking, show me how worthless all my earthly pursuits are compared to you. Show me how fleeting are the things of value on the earth where moth and rust destroy. And show me that this discipline 
is temporary like all the rest. I found the second part of verse 6 very striking. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Now a few months ago, my grandpa Leonard passed away after a long life of cattle ranching in the small town of West Hope, North Dakota. Anyone know where West Hope is? A few people. At his passing, the family was asked to go through his belongings at the old farmhouse and take what they would like. So when we went up to the funeral, my stepdad and my brothers went to the house and were kind of looking around. And, and some of the young kids there, hopefully not my kids, but probably my kids, part of that, were going around and just sticking random things in their pocket that they find on the tables. And my stepdad said to me something along the lines of, it's hard to watch. Someone having worked his life for all these things, collecting things that meant something to him, and now look at it. Just kids who have no idea what these things meant to him, just grabbing whatever they want. That's the picture that David painted here in verse 6. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Surely this is one of the sobering truths of life, and it was never more real to me than in that moment. Now, I think there are a few takeaways for us here. First, life is too short to not forgive quickly. I've seen so many families torn apart by long-standing disputes and unforgiveness. Let us look to Christ as our example that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Make the call to your loved one to offer forgiveness today. You may not be given another opportunity. Second, we're reminded of the fleeting nature of our earthly pursuits. You'll never have enough money to satisfy your desires. You'll never make it high enough in your career to be worth neglecting your children for years. And that sin that seems so appealing in the moment will never bring you lasting joy and satisfaction. And lastly, do not wait another moment if you have not surrendered your life to Christ. Life is fleeting and your days are but a few handbreadths. So do not waste another moment living in opposition to a holy God. For before you know it, life may pass you by and you may find yourself on the receiving end of an eternal judgment. Now before we move to our final point, I'd like for us to look at one more verse. Verse 11, it reads, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. The moth is usually used in Scripture to refer to its destructive characteristics. Job chapter 13, verse 28 says, Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. And Christ says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So like a moth that consumes the garment, so does David feel like God is consuming what is dear to him. And there are two examples connected to David's sin with Bathsheba of God consuming what was dear to him. 
The first example was the child of Bathsheba that God promised would die. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verse 15, just a few verses after we, what we read, reads, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. The second example is his son Absalom, who fulfilled God's promise of evil rising up against him from within his house. Absalom eventually forced David to flee and enter Jerusalem with his men. In chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, we then read of Joab and his men killing Absalom against the wishes of David. A messenger was then sent, and in verse 31 we read, And behold, the Cushite, the, the messenger, came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Which translated means he was killed. <clears throat> and the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. If ever there was a man who had to bear dreadful consequences for his sin, David is that man. And what are we to do with this story? How could God taking two sons from David be fruitful in his life? And how are we to respond when things like this happen in our lives? Not always as corrective discipline, but happening nonetheless. For that, we turn to our last point. Discipline should draw us to our Savior. Verse 7 is directly in the center of this passage, and it also serves as a centerpiece of David's prayer. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. An entire sermon could be written on this one verse. After looking around and seeing the fleeting nature of the pursuits of man, and after recognizing the brevity of his life and the frailty before God, and after enduring the strong hand of the Lord, David sees nothing else that will satisfy his longing, nothing else that will soothe his weary soul. And in desperation, he turns to the answer to all our troubles, to all our longing, and to all of our questions of why that we have in this life. David turns to God. My hope is in you. When God had directed his corrective gaze toward David, David did not look elsewhere for comfort. He did not look elsewhere for relief. He looked to God, his only hope. And not only was God David's only hope, 
but God is our only hope. So what is the fruit of the Lord's discipline? Spurgeon writes of this psalm in his treasury of David, it is not to consume us, but to consume our sins that the Lord aims at in his chastisements. This is the goal of God's discipline, the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we can expect if we are followers of him. God wants to rid us of all of our sinful desires, of all the things that get in the way of us truly loving him fully, because as a father knows what's best for his child, God knows what's best for us. He knows that we will be truly satisfied, that we, we will be truly at peace only when we find our satisfaction and our peace in him. As a father trains his son in how to look both ways before crossing the street, so our Heavenly Father trains us to avoid the actions that would lead to our destruction. God's discipline produces much fruit in us, and though we might not see it in the moment, over time, that fruit will sometimes yield twofold, tenfold, or even a hundredfold. The pain that you're going through will make you long for heaven. When the people you once looked up to and trusted, they betray you or sin in a way that grieves you, we're reminded to put our trust in God and not in man. When you lose your job, you're reminded that only the Lord can provide for our needs. And any sense of security that you might have felt like you can control is ripped out of your heart. And all these things, though they are unpleasant at the time and sometimes seemingly unbearable, if you are a child of God, they will produce lasting and righteous fruit that will grow you in sanctification and your faith in God, even if you can't see how in the moment. I want us to consider something for a moment. What would it look like if God did not discipline us? What would be the result? Well, I want to be very clear this morning. If God did not discipline us, then we would not be his sons. And if we are not his sons, then we would be condemned. <clears throat> For God to leave you in your sin would be to your condemnation. And Paul gives us a very clear picture of this in Romans chapter 1. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for lie and worshiped and served the creator, creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. (coughs) Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what it looks like to receive God's condemnation rather than his discipline. And this is the ramifications for those who do not put their faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. You will receive God's condemnation, not his discipline. Brothers and sisters, do not fear the discipline of the Lord, for it is for your good. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. David writes in verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions, What man can deliver himself from his own sinfulness? The answer, no man, right? Only Christ can free us from our bondage to sin. Only Christ can change what would be God's condemnation, punishment, and death into loving discipline, training, and life. Dear Christian, if you are being disciplined by God, Count it a joy, because you are counted as a child of God. David recognizes that his battle is not with God, but it is with his own sin. Cling to Jesus, and may he set you free. David never loses sight of the fact that God is doing this for his good, that God is on his side. He writes in verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. For the believer in Jesus, this life is often described as a sojourn, as a wandering in a foreign land. But dear Christian, you do not wander alone, for God himself is with you. Just as God was with Abraham when he entered a foreign land, and just as God was with Israel, As they wandered in the wilderness, God is still with you. And because of that, he does hear your prayer and he does hear your cry. Cry out to him in your time of need when his correctional or his preventive or his educational discipline is upon you. For we serve a loving God and when we draw near to him, he will not leave us nor forsake us. 
And David concludes in verse 13. Look away from me, or in some translations, spare me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David is not asking God to abandon him. I believe what David is saying here is this. God, I've learned the lesson. I understand why your hand is upon me. Spare me. Remove your corrective gaze from me. For I now understand my frailty before you and my need for you. Help me. Deliver me from my sin. For I am spent. I repent. Brothers and sisters, we can go to God in our distress. We can repent of our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I hope it has been made clear this morning that nothing so shapes and molds the believer in their dependence on God as his discipline. It seems to be a universal truth that some of the most faithful, bold, and courageous Christians throughout history have been those most disciplined by God. David himself, described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, endured some of the most trying and painful discipline. Yet it produced the fruit of righteousness apparent in all the wonderful Psalms that we read today. I would go so far as to say that had David not received the disciplines from God that he did receive, he would have not been the great king we remember today. And many or all of the Psalms that we love would never have been written. I pray that it is now apparent to us all that God disciplines those whom he loves. And though it is unpleasant in the moment, it produces fruit in us and draws us to our Savior. So before, or as I conclude here, I'd like to ask a few more questions of application from this text. The first one, what fruit has discipline yielded in you that would not have been produced otherwise? Or the second question, do you see God's discipline as vengeful or do you see it as his fatherly care? And third, when when you're disciplined by God, do you draw away from or towards Christ? As we close, may we look to our Savior for hope in the midst of God's discipline. For only Christ was able to hold his tongue. For he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Only Christ can deliver us from our transgressions, freeing us from eternal condemnation. Only Christ can remove the hand of judgment that would be our undoing and replace it with the hand of discipline, which is for our good. And only Christ can take this life, what feels and seems like only a few handbreadths, and give us an eternal life, no longer in the presence of the wicked, but in the presence of Almighty God. (coughs) May God's discipline remind us of our frailty and draw us to our life-giving Savior. Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this time this morning, studying your word and considering your discipline of us. Help us to see it as the loving hand of a father 
Help us to recognize our sins that sometimes are causing the consequences and circumstances that we're going through. May we repent of those, Lord. Help us to find our hope and our faith in you. (coughs) And may your discipline, Lord, draw us to our loving Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.